This is tape number seven in our series, Thriving in the World. Dr. Joel Hunter will discuss the end of the world as we have known it. And that's the title of this message. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter has selected Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. And it reads as follows. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child, and to those who nurse babies in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect. Those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And now let's join Dr. Hunter as he continues with message number seven in his series, Thriving in the World, as he discusses the end of the world as we have known it. If you will turn with me to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, I will read to you about a transition point in history. And while you're turning there, let me explain this to you. Last week, I gave you a creation pattern. Remember, God builds an environment and puts a resident within that environment in order to enact with that environment. That's a creation pattern. This week, I'm going to explain to you a redemption pattern. And that redemption pattern is about the changes in history and what God does and what God hopes for or what God designs into those changes in history. I'm going to read to you today about the fall of Jerusalem, the desolation of Jerusalem. That was an actual event in history that took place in 70 A.D. that Jesus was predicting here to his disciples in 30 A.D. In verse 15 it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that had to do with the destruction of the temple, which was spoken of through David or Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now this was Jesus' counsel, by the way, this is a historical note. And as the historian Josephus writes, the Jewish historian Josephus, they did not flee to the mountains. As a matter of fact, they all gathered in Jerusalem and they're surrounded by Roman troops and a million people lost their lives by starvation. So, this is his... These are his orders. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are uh, out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be on the winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation, such as not such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. Now look at these three words. Or nor ever shall. This is not about the end of history. This is about the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And this predicts a future beyond that. Nor ever shall. 
And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. God looks out for his people. He gives to his people what they need. Now let me tell you why I read this story to you. It's an, it's an example of God going on with his redemption pattern. And this is the pattern. Keep this in your mind. Throughout history, God has ushered his people out of very comfortable settings into a wilderness to see if they could maintain their relationships and their identity in him. If they would form a people solely dependent on him or if they would be mixed in with the rest of the heathen among whom they lived. Now, this started in the garden. They had a very comfortable situation, to say the least. And when man and woman fell, God, it says in Genesis chapter 3, drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, he not only ushered the man and the woman out into the wilderness to lead a whole new life, he slammed the door shut. And they couldn't get back in. There was a sword at the door. They could not re-enter Eden. Later, as civilization grew, as barbarianism grew, God was so sick of all the sin that he decided to destroy the entire world with a flood. And so he did just that except for a family who took refuge on a wooden piece of salvation, a premonition of the cross. Noah and his family floated out that absolute destruction of those who had turned to their own sin. And in the ninth chapter of Genesis, the first verse, God does it again. He ushers Noah out. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, start all over again in this wilderness. Because of the flood, you can never go home again. You've got to start all over again. And then, in the 12th chapter of Genesis, he calls out Abram. And he says, I'm calling you out from your country and from your father and from your family. And I am sending you to a land which I will show you. And showed him yet. I will send you to a land which I will show you. And so here is Abram called out of a very comfortable surrounding. He was a rich man with a rich family. And he goes out with animals and with some cousins and, and, and friends. And, and they just go out into the wilderness to build a people for God. That was the test. Can you build a people for God in a foreign land? And throughout the history of Israel, this happens again. It, they go from a, a monarchy of David uh, being the strongest of all nations and degenerated into a divided kingdom and then into captivity. And when they are residents in the land of foreigners, there is in the Psalms a plaintive cry. It is a question all of us need to ask ourselves who live in a foreign culture, a culture foreign to the precepts and absolutes of Christianity. It says this, By the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137, 
First verse, by the rivers of Babylon, that was the country in which they were held captive. There we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, that's their home country, that's their their premonition of what heaven will be like. Upon the willows, in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were mocked for their faith. Not too different than you see evangelicals being mocked on the media today, being made to look as fools. And then this question that all of us need to ask, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the, that's the question. That's the challenge. And so God continues to put us into a foreign land. The scripture reading that I read for you today is the ushering of the Christians out of Jerusalem into the uttermost parts of the world. You know, the church began in the Jewish faith. And when it became apparent that not all Jews were going to accept Jesus as the Messiah, Yeshua, as the Messiah. The church had a decision to make. Should they turn back and try to become a part of the Jewish faith and an outbranch? Or should they be ushered into a whole new wilderness and fend it for themselves and develop their identity only in Jesus Christ? There must have been a huge temptation. Just as there was a temptation when Moses led the people out of Egypt and they went across the Red Sea Exodus 14. And the Hebrews went across on dry land, and then they looked back, and here was Pharaoh's armies, the mighty nation that had fed them. And Pharaoh's armies come across, and the waters close up. Once more, God slammed the door to the past. And he was telling the Hebrews, you can never come back here again. And that's what happened when the temple was destroyed. God slammed the door on the past, and he said, you can never come back here again. The challenge I have for you is can you build a people in the wilderness that loves each other because of Jesus Christ, because of His nature, that has their identity only in me, a a nation different than any other nation in the world, an identity different than any other identity than the foreigners in their land. And so we find ourselves today in that situation. Let me take another snippet of history, reminding you that Christ prophesied that he would have a developmental arm in history, that the Father had fixed times and seasons. It's in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, when the disciples are very curious as to how history is going to develop and whether history is going to develop. And look at what Jesus says. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, they still had in their mind, that's how it was going to go. Jesus gave them a very general answer, but very specific information. Watch what he says. 
It is not for you to know the times or the epochs. The chronos a kairos. The schedule, the calendar, chronological time, or the seasons. He is Lord of the seasons, the kairos, the, the times of opportunity. They're not just calendar times. They're times of opportunity. He said, it's not for you to know those at this point. And then look at what he says. Which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Do you understand that our Father God has fixed history? Do you understand, as I said last week, that history does not develop into an undetermined and unknown future? That Jesus Christ is not only the Alpha, He is the Omega, He's not only the beginning, He's the end, and that future and, the, and that the present develops from the future, not from the past, not just from the past. And so, therefore, the Father has fixed these times, and therefore it is up to us to read what season we're in. So that as we go through these times, we can continue with that redemption pattern of developing a people solely with their identity in Jesus Christ. Solely with their identity in God. What season are we in right now? Let me look back just for an example to tell you the main, the main watershed of history from which we have come. And this is tough for me. As a history major in college, I love history. And so just to center on one deal is, is tough, but, but I know not many people like history as much as I do, so let me just do this. From the year 1400 to the 1600s, the whole course of the development of the world changed. Now, please remember, again, God is God of history. There's not sacred history that's mentioned in the Bible and secular history that is in our textbook. It's all God's history. God's in charge of this deal. So, at this turning point, three huge changes happened. First of all, there was an ecclesiastical ushering out from a very comfortable situation into the wilderness called the Reformation. Christians knew that the church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, had become very corrupt. As a matter of fact, they had the audacity to say that the church has as much power to tell you what God wants as the Bible does. And Martin Luther went and said, wait a minute, there's a lot of reforms that need to be made here. And the church said, wait a minute, bang, you're out. You're excommunicated. And the door was slammed shut. And so here were these believers who were going out into a wilderness to see whether or not they could build a people that was solely dependent upon Scripture, solely dependent on God's grace, solely dependent on faith. Not through the institution of the church, but only on what God would do in their midst. That was the ecclesiastical pushing out into the wilderness, the testing of God. There was also another turning point, and that is with the development of the Renaissance. There was a, a worldview turning point. And for the first time, people in general no longer believed God to be the center of everything. They moved man into that spot. 
with the development and the intention, uh, attention toward, in, uh, uh, in, I forgot the word. I just went, oh my goodness, this is the beginning of old age. No, actually it started a long time ago, but uh, antiquity. With the attention toward what was classical, with the attention toward the workings of the human body, with the attention toward the discoveries of science, came another worldview. No longer were the scientists solely discovering how God had made creation, although the greatest scientists were believers in Jesus Christ, and in their minds they were discovering how God had made creation. But now a shift had taken place. And there was a division between sacred and secular, and now they were working in the secular world. And now they were developing discoveries in order to help man live better and more efficiently. And what happened was that there was a change in an entire culture. And instead of man becoming further interconnected around God, man became interconnected with machines around progress. Now, you see where we're going here? Keep, keep with me. What happened at the end of that period is what is called the Industrial Revolution. I'm reading a book, I read a book a couple of weeks ago called by, by David Glertner, who is the professor of computer science at Yale. And he wrote a book called Mirror Worlds. And in that book, he writes something very interesting. He said, you know, in 1791, the Industrial Revolution had happened. But hardly anyone knew it. He said, you could go to Manchester, England, and you could see the power loom, the spinning jenny. You could see the coke-fired blast furnace. You could see the, um, uh, the steam engine. And you could say, the Industrial Revolution has happened. But if you took a wide view of the general populace, they would not agree that it had happened because they didn't see any huge change. It took years and years to see the ramifications of that industrial revolution. The ramifications that we could accomplish so much more as individuals. And that not only did communities not need each other anymore, but families didn't need each other anymore. That as fewer and fewer people lived on the farm. The kids weren't dependent on the parents for a job and the parents weren't dependent on kids for labor and the husband wasn't dependent on wife for income and you didn't have to have all of the, the relatives living with you because now everyone could be financially independent. And you know what that particular aspect has done to the family, that along with several other things. But nobody knew that back in 1791. Even though the machinery had been invented, it was not yet widespread. Gallertner's point is this. We have entered into just as humongous a revolution with computers. Now, please listen to me. I am not afraid of computers. I use computers. And I believe that machines are just machines if you have a strategy to use machines. If you don't have a strategy, they begin to mold your life. 
Neil Postman said this in Technopoly. They begin to have their way with you. They become a vessel for your temptation to do things in an easier fashion rather than do the very difficult things of building community, of having human relationships. You know how difficult it is to love. You know how difficult. And that's why if there's an alternative to build up something artificial and automatic, we are very much drawn to it. Well, this is what's happening in these days that I am going to explain to you in, coming, uh, in the coming uh, um, sermons. I won't try to get it all done today, but let me just show you the general pattern. The general pattern is this, that the world is developing in two ways. You can read this in uh, uh, Peter Drucker's uh, Post-Capitalist Society. Excellent book. One of the sharpest management consultants alive. And he writes this. He says, because of the communication systems that we have, we are developing literally a world community. Now, you can, you can rave all you want about, you know, world, one world, this and one It's there. This world is binding together economically. This world is being come, become interdependent on one another. And what that does is it lessens the role of the nation states. And it takes away the identity that a nation used to have with the mother state. You ask kids these days what it means to be an American, they can't tell you. I mean, when I was growing up, it was such a, we're patriots, you know. And this did not, this had a downside because Christians have their identity totally in Jesus Christ, no matter what country they're in. We're in a transnational culture. But I'm just saying that Americans these days don't see themselves as Americans. That's been taken away. And what is happening, Drucker says, is that when you develop your identity on one scale, we're all involved with all the countries of the world economically, he said there is an immediate counterbalance or pull because people not only need to have the big vision, but they also need to have roots. They need to be identified with a small group. And he said that's exactly what's happening in this society. People are being identified with their gangs or their groups. Only in order to do that, and in order to live peacefully together, you can't have any one group that claims superiority over other groups. So we are developing, now watch this, stay with me on this, we are developing a culture that has its full intention toward being a pluralistic society. Groups in peaceful coexistence with one another. You don't bother me, I don't bother you. And in order to do that, you've got to have everybody saying, your opinion counts just as much as mine. Now in order to do that, you can't have one group that says, no, wait a minute, I've got the truth. I've got the truth of all time. And if you don't believe it, you're wrong. And if you have one group saying that, they are going to become more and more unpopular because they're ruffling feathers. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this country. Now let me tell you what you have if you don't have a group that says that or offers an alternative vision of where love comes from. You have the slow death of a country and its culture and its inhabitants. You know, I really believe that if we were to look 
at the particular development of some things in our culture, we could see an overall pattern of God. I believe that about plagues. I believe that about diseases. I believe that diseases are not only real, they're symbolic of other things. Do you know what the disease AIDS is? It is literally the biological form of radical pluralism. It is the body saying, you know, there's not just one way that we operate. Any, any virus out there ought to be able to come in and inhabit this body. And I'm not going to tell you what can go on or what can't go on because your opinion is as good as mine. And so therefore, we'll just all live in here together. And you know the development of that horrible disease and the development of the, some wonderful people who have it. Their bodies can't discriminate. Their bodies can't say, no, that's wrong, that'll kill us. And so eventually, the tiniest disease can kill them. A common cold can kill them. That can happen in this country. As great as this country is, we used to fear that we would be killed in a major war by nuclear bombing from a major power. That's not going to happen. You know what can kill us? Not knowing what's valuable. Not knowing what's right and what's wrong. The little things in the lives of individuals can kill us. You know, I, the strongest people... Let me tell you, I... I, I uh, it mentioned childhood stories. Let me, I just happen to have one here. <laughs> By the way, my wife let me wear my tie today. <laughs> she said, she thinks I have aesthetic AIDS. You know, I can't tell the difference between what's beautiful and what's not. But, but uh, she said, since you're preaching on the future, you can wear this tie. This is one of those uh, molecular um, expressions ties. This is, this is actually... Actually, the molecular structure of para-aminobenzoic acid. Uh, oh, uh, wait, it gets better. This is PABA. And every time you go to the beach and spread on sunscreen, this is what you look like to God. <laughs> Anyhow. Some of you have heard me talk about Red Bricker. And when I was a kid, I, I, there was a neighborhood bully named Red Bricker. And, and, and Red was a, sometimes a kind of guy and sometimes a, a rough guy. But he was, he was always the strongest and the biggest and the tallest. He's about 18 feet tall and just always liked to rough us up, you know. And every day I would go to Red Bricker's house and we would wrestle. Now, not good wrestling like high schoolers do, but big time wrestling where you jump off turnbuckles and, and you know, do all kinds of tricks. Well... Every day, Red Bricker would beat me up because I was just absolutely no match for Red Bricker. And every day, he'd get me in an arm lock, you know, and I'd be going like this, you know, only he'd go way back. And every day, he'd go, give up, give up. And I was so stubborn, I'd never give up. I'd just start crying because it hurt so bad. And Red let me go and call me names, and I'd go home, and five minutes later, I'd be back. Come on, let's go again, you know. Come on. Well, one day... We were wrestling, and, and Red just had me up spinning me around. You know the old airplane spin like this? <laughs> spinning me around. Man. And, I, and I looked down at the floor, and I was about 18 stories up, and I thought, oh, man, I'm so scared. And just by instinct, by accident, I wrapped 
my legs around his head. Well, I wasn't trying to hurt him. I just had, I was just afraid of falling. And I had these little bony, bony little knees that just came right here on his head. And I got scared and I squeezed to hold onto his head. And red went down to his knees. He went, ah, ah. I said, what are you, what's happening? Don't do that to my head. It hurts. And I was able to say those two words that I'd wanted to say all my life. <laughs> Give up. I'm saying to you that the mightiest of people can be brought down by the littlest of people with just the right pressure points. The mightiest of nations can be brought down in their loneliness and in their selfishness and in their resolve not to stick to God's standards can be brought down. Now, let me finish with a, a note of hope. Because I want to remind you, He's Lord of all. He's Lord of all. This is not outside His control. God's not sitting in heaven going, oh, What's going to happen? He is calling us to become His people. And no matter what happens in this culture, to become stronger and stronger. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 9 through 11. The vision has never changed. And this is the vision of Revelation also. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. To what? To this foreign culture we live in. To abstain from fleshy lusts which wage war against the soul. The ways of this world will take us down if we don't have our identity in Jesus Christ. But let me give you the positive side of that negative picture. Let me give you a vision that I've had and been dragging me around by the chest. And I checked it out with the elders and asked them if I could share it with you. And they said yes this week. I believe that we need to begin to build a place of an environment that is radically different than the world. I believe that we can build a Christian environment, a place that has some geography to it. Now, I do not believe that the kingdom of God has an address and, I do address, and I do not believe in such things as utopia, where everything is perfect. We are sinful people, and like the sign says, wherever we go, there we are, and so is our sin. There is no perfect society. But I believe that we can build a society within a society that is dedicated to Jesus Christ, that is a safe haven for our children. I believe it because there are two things that God puts inside of us that never go away because they're a vision of the people he wants to build in the end. One of those things is wanting to live a life that is right and that is pure. And the other one is wanting to be a part of a genuine community. 
Now, both of those things are tough. They're impossible without God. But why won't they go away? Why is it that a little girl who watches her mother, her single mother, fail at her fourth relationship and has never seen a successful marriage, has never seen a successful man-woman relationship, why is it that that little girl still dreams someday she'll get married and love a husband and they'll have a happy marriage? She's never seen it. How can she hope for it? How can a little boy who's been chosen only because he had to be chosen at the end of choosing up the basketball team every week in school, and every time he walks down the hall, the other boys just kind of subtly turn their back on him because he's unacceptable. How is it that that little boy still dreams someday of growing up and having friends who will love him and accept him? Why is it that people who have been so burned by the church, as I know many of you have, you've been hurt and you deserve to be at least careful. Why are you back? What are you doing here? Why haven't you learned your lesson? Because there's something in us that wants genuine community and there's something in us that knows that it can only come from the love of God. And we can't quit trying till we get it right. Now, here's just a thought, and I want you to pray about this with me. I would love to think that somewhere within driving distance of this church, 10, 15, 20 miles, that there would be a piece of land that we could just stake out and say, this is where everyone is included. This is where people specifically who want to live their lives according to Jesus Christ can come and find fellowship in the spiritual sense. This isn't a place for TV sets. This isn't a place for arguments. This is a place where our kids can come. And there are not program after program. This is why, incidentally, this doesn't really exist as I've seen it in the church because the church is organized around programs and activities. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need those to build us up, to edify us in the faith. In the faith. But where does the fellowship come from? You know, in the early church, there was such an atmosphere of persecution. And yes, they came together for Bible study and for prayer. And no, they never left their homes or their jobs. But I can tell you, they spent hangout time together. And they watched each other's kids grow up. Let me, let me just take it back to that little girl. Where is that little girl ever going to see what a healthy marriage is? Where will she ever be able to relate and say, you know, I know this couple in our church that was married for 40 years. I see how they treat one another. How is she ever going to get out of that cycle if she can't see that in the church? And how is she ever going to see it in the church if every time she comes in that door, she's in a Sunday school class and she never sees what grown-ups do and how they react with one another? How are we ever going to reorient ourselves how to live in the world if all we do in the church is either seek personal counseling or come to class or come to worship? Where's the hangout time where you sit around and you say, well, this is, how, this is what I think God's doing in the world and this is how we could contribute to that? It's, it's, it's a vision.
And I want you to pray with me about it. It's not something that will replace what is so valuable in this church. But it's the next step. It's what the early church had and what the institutional church struggles to have. And it's almost impossible to build. As a matter of fact, it is impossible to build without God's direct intervention. But we can't give up. You know why? Because the more the culture becomes foreign to us, the more we've got to be an alternative to it. Pray with me. God, as we look at the big picture, I realize that there are some people in here that just came because they're hurting and they're lonely. And we don't want to look at the picture so big that we don't also realize your Lord, not only of history, but of the individual life. God, if there's anybody in here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ, who is not secure in their salvation, but who doesn't want to live without you any longer, let them pray this prayer with me. God, I have lived without you, and I don't want to do that anymore. It doesn't work, and even if it did, I would still be lonely for you. Jesus, come into my heart and live. And stay there forever. And make of my life whatever you want, but especially make of my life what is of your character. Forgive me for my sins. I have no basis upon which to have my sins forgiven other than what you did on the cross. But I accept that forgiveness. For the rest of us that have prayed that prayer, Lord, and have individual needs, come minister to us in your Holy Spirit. But let us all not let go of the big picture either. For you're Lord of all. Lord of the small and of the grand. And help us to build in both worlds what is your kingdom, what is your vision for the end time community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.